So that's something that we focus on. You had mentioned uh, 150 basis points, our original study. Um, we have it at a 200 now, and I'll say I don't think either of those numbers accurately describe the true impact of this. But I'll talk yeah. a little bit about where they came from because we've, you know, again, you try to kind of kind of try to triangulate some of these things and, and build a little more confidence around the value. Um, the 150 came from originally we did a study at Vanguard uh, from 2008. Five years ended at the end of 2012, so that five-year period uh, to include the the great financial crisis, global financial crisis. And we looked at 50 plus thousand IRA investors and we actually said, uh, what were your investment outcomes if you made a trade, even just one trade that altered your asset allocation by greater than 5%. So trying to mm -hmm. filter out some of the rebalancing activity mm -hmm. versus those who didn't and then compared that to something like a, you know, like a target date fund glide path, right? Something yeah. that we would say is age appropriate. So it adjusts for, you know, de Welcome to AFO Wealth Management Forward, a podcast about finance, accounting, technology, and entrepreneurship. We apply our decades worth of experience and insight into what makes businesses work so we can help others grow both personally and professionally. In this ever-evolving marketplace, we help accounting firms and financial advisors grow their practice through the adoption of holistic wealth management services. Learn from industry leaders and subject matter experts to unlock the secrets of their success a podcast that shows people and companies the transformative power of technology so they don't fear it, but instead harness it. Don't fight the robots, team up with them. And here are your hosts, Rory Henry, Director of Business Development and CEO Rob Santos of Arrowroot Family Office. All right, everybody. I have another amazing guest joining us today. He is a CFA. He's a Senior Strategist at Vanguard Investment Advisory Research Group. The group is responsible for creating, articulating, and implementing world-class investment, wealth management, behavioral coaching, and practice management, uh, thought leadership. We're here to talk about the value of an advisor and, more importantly, behavioral coaching. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest, Michael DeJoseph. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rory. Excited to be here. All right, buddy. Let's get started. You know, we talked right before we came on here. I think a good starting off point is the advisor alpha study that you've done this goes back to 2001 can you talk about for our audience uh you know outlining the value uh that you're showing that advisors have in a more in a relationship oriented setting and you know some of those latest findings on really adding or adhering to a holistic wealth manage management strategy and how that can add value to clients sure thing i agree i think it's a great place to start um, so I'll go back a little bit. Uh, like you said, the, the term originated here at Vanguard back in 2001, Advisors Alpha, and it was really kind of the early stages of a broad shift in the industry towards more of, as you mentioned, like a holistic wealth manager, financial planning approach, right? Rather than uh, you go before, you know, before the tech bubble back in the late 90s, it was really about, you know, trading individual securities. Yeah. You go back even further, it was kind of the stockbroker, right? Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> type 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 model uh, you know i'm sure some would say the good old days but uh, cer certainly not their clients jordan um, belfort <laughs> those are the good exactly. old days yeah great movie maybe not so good in terms of actual outcomes <laughs> right. for the clients that's hard but right um and so the term was originated tired of spending hours on financial analysis and reporting if you're manually doing your reporting you need to check out live flow They've completely automated the entire process. LiveFlow integrates QuickBooks with Google Sheets, 
making life easier for accountants and finance professionals. LiveFlow's plug-and-play templates for financial models save you from hiring additional staff. But here's the real game changer. LiveFlow's consolidation automation feature. No more time-consuming manual consolidation. With LiveFlow, you can automate the entire consolidation process in just 10 minutes. On average, LiveFlow users save at least two days every month and are able to take on more clients. It's time to transform your financial workflow. Visit LiveFlow.io and use the promo code ROR for 20% off. So if we, if we think about it, advisor is alpha, right? So what is alpha? Well, alpha is this industry jargon that we use to describe uh, the investment returns that you get over a benchmark, really simply. So let's say, um, let's say you're an active manager in the stock market and your benchmark, meaning you know, uh, the, the index that you're trying to beat, let's just say it's S&P 500. If you do better than the S&P 500, you added alpha, right? That right. difference is the alpha. Uh, if you don't, you didn't, right? Super simple um, to measure. And in this age of information, it's it's really easy to measure at even a, a very high frequency. Um, <laughs> and so the advisor's alpha concept was kind of, you know, as the industry was evolving to take on more of an emphasis on helping clients meet their goals and acknowledging that there's more to investing and more to financial planning and being a financial advisor than just, you know, trying to beat the market. It was kind of the same thing. It's like, so, okay, if your benchmark, instead of being the S&P 500, we would say your benchmark is, you know, what are your outcomes going to be uh, without an advisor versus with an advisor who's actually emphasizing all of these different things? And that difference is the advisor's alpha. And so it's, hey, you know, maybe you'd have, let's just say hypothetically, a 50% chance of reaching your goal, right? Some you right. Know, future hypothetical versus with an advisor, maybe it's 75 or 85%, right? And so that difference um is the advisor's alpha so that's where the term came from that's kind of the high level of what it means yeah i know there's caveats to that too michael because i think the report shows that if you adhere to that holistic wealth management framework you're looking at a three percent um per year uh, average relative to the average investor is that correct yeah so that's kind of the tagline we call it the about three <laughs> percent in quotes yeah. right uh, yeah. i know you can't see me but i'm doing the little air quotes, the quotes. um so Yes, laundry list of caveats, and I'll start with this one. It's <laughs> think of it as more of an art than a science, right? So, um, you know, certainly folks like myself and, um, you know, people who are more analytical, we tend to look at that and think like, okay, well, there must be some like scientific precision around that. And it's, 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 it's a robust analysis, um, but I would say it's, it's not, you know, uh, super precise to every single individual in every single year. It's going to be bumpy. Yeah. Right? There are some years where, you know, maybe you don't have a ton of opportunity to add value and maybe that number will even be negative. Let's just say you don't make any changes, changes in the financial plan. Uh, let's say things are going, you know, going great. You're not withdrawing money. There's no, you know, kind of real impetus to make an emotional decision, but you're rebalancing the portfolio. What does that mean? Well, it means you're selling stocks that are going up, presumably. Are you an accountant looking to generate more revenue and secure your future success as automation and artificial intelligence revolutionize the accounting profession? If so, contact us at AFO Wealth Management Forward. 
We specialize in helping accountants and advisors just like you build a custom brand to pinpoint your optimal clientele, generate highly qualified leads through our data-driven digital marketing, and execute wealth management growth services to bring more value to your firm and your client's life. Our strategic approach to branding, marketing, and wealth management is carefully tailored to attract ideal clients, increase customer retention rates, and cultivate lasting relationships with clients across generations. Visit wealthmanagementforward.com to book your free consultation to find out how you can elevate your practice. To buy an asset class that hasn't gone up, and so you would look at the end of the year and you would say, well, all I did this year as a financial advisor was sell an asset that kept on going up. I didn't add value. Right. Again, right. we know rebalancing is not meant to add value per se in that way. Um, but then there's other years where, you know, you may have new money coming in. Maybe you're reallocating a portfolio. You're making investment decisions. Uh, maybe it's a volatile year, you know, like we've had in 2020 yeah. and 2022, where, you know, a lot of investors left on their own um, and a lot of professionals candidly left, you know, without an advisor might make some big decisions that detract, you know, not just 3%, but maybe it's 30 Right. right percent in in you know a really short period of time and so um art not a science uh you know it's on average over a long period of time um and then the other distinction and this kind of gets at the heart of uh what we try to measure and how we try to measure it um it's this notion that advisors alpha is really about closing the gap between gross and net returns yeah and so we're not here to tell you that you do this strategy, you're going to add 3% to your investment returns, <laughs> right. right? It's not, hey, hey, your portfolio is 10, you do this, <laughs> what Vanguard says, you'll get 13. Right. This is where the, our audience, mainly too, the CPA accounting firms out there, the tax efficiency, because those are the components, right? The cost, the tax efficiency, and then lastly, the behavioral coaching. Yep. So if you think about it this way, so the gap between gross returns and net returns, by definition, is going to be some sort of leakage. Yeah. Right. And so it's leakage from costs. Uh, specifically from costs that are higher than they could be for you know similar quality products in particular. Uh, it's going to be in the taxes and it's going to be on the timing. So uh, again, costs, taxes, and timing, those are the three areas that you can minimize. And so, like you said, for your audience, right, it's our research would show that asset location, which location. I think is often, often underappreciated. We hear about yeah. asset allocation. It's like, what's your stocks, bonds? How much of it's active, how much of it's index, you know, where you're doing private equity hedge funds, whatever the decisions might be. Um, you know, I think most people aren't really considering to themselves on their own devices of, okay, well, where do I put them? And right. what are the implications of that? Right. If I have an active a tax advantage fund, account example, versus a taxable account, right? Yeah, and there's and it gets pretty complex too, right? Because you start thinking about, okay, well, depending on how much we call shelf space. So how much room do you have? Yeah. Like if you have a, you know, a million dollar portfolio and 500,000 of it's in tax advantage, we'd say you have 500,000 in shelf space. Like, okay, well, you know, if you want to use taxable bonds, you're probably going to put them in the tax advantaged account. And, you know, what if your uh, client has more than 50% of their assets in bonds? Right. Are you going to put, you know, then you start thinking about, am I going to use munis, right? Or, or maybe I'm going to use active, but uh, I don't have the shelf space for it. So then maybe you're thinking about something like direct indexing or an SMA to help with some of the tax inefficiencies. Um, huge amount of value can be added there. And I, yeah. I think, you know, for most clients, it's probably close to the amount of the fee that they're charging. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and that's just an accumulation. This is something that matters in decumulation too. We call it tax right. efficient drawdown. That's, yeah. Can you, you go know, into that? The tax, the, the benefits of the tax efficient drawdown? 
Yeah, so I think in our most recent study, um, you've probably read it more recently than me. I think we said it was about 100, <laughs> 110 basis points, somewhere in that range um, in value. But effectively, it's okay, well, you know, you get to retirement, let's say for a client whose primary or, or one of their main goals is, is actually drawing down assets. Um, you know, I think the, the conventional wisdom here is I've saved my whole career in a retirement account. Now it's retirement. Where do I spend from? I mean, right like most people are going to think retirement account right. retirement um but what we found is that actually by you know having a little more of a robust methodology around uh the spending order right particularly you know if you have uh if you're over a certain age you have to take rmds, RMDs yeah. and and so you're already paying taxes on that if you reinvest it you're gonna pay taxes again so we just right. say okay we'll spend that it's already taxed um you know, you might have cash flows coming out of the portfolio in the form of interest payments, uh, dividends and funds and stocks and bonds and things like that. Uh, again, already being taxed, so spend them. But then it's where it gets a little interesting. And it's, you know, there's, we have a rule of thumb, right? Like I said, it's an art, not a science here. So our rule of thumb <laughs> for someone who's looking to maximize their drawdown um, and minimize the, the tax liability over time is going to be to spend from those taxable assets first, actually. And let the the tax advantage assets continue to be advantaged, right? Focus on the advantage right. there. Um, now, if you want to actually leave assets to an error in some you know significant um, quantity, that may not be that may not be the best strategy because you miss out on the step up in step basis. Up basis. Yeah. Um, I always talk about the- uh, on our podcast, uh, Michael, that we're advising people from womb to tomb. So have that kid uh, start that college savings plan. And then for CPAs and accounting firms out there, they're the ones helping people start businesses, grow those businesses, have a succession plan, have the liquidity event, hopefully, and then make sure they have that estate plan that connects the next generation. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think even, you know, for this audience, something that's probably a little more advanced, but when you really start to have kind of a higher acumen on taxes and more insight into that, even something like a Roth conversion, Yeah. right? Like, you know, so maybe you're actually accelerating the taxes, given some differential, or especially if there's a liquidity event in the future that you can plan around, um, gifting strategies, all of that stuff. I mean, it's so it's so valuable to um, to that end client, especially when you look at it in terms of relative to the fee that they're charging. Yeah, and that doesn't even get to you know the actual investment outcomes and the behavior and all of these other things well, let's talk doing. about that behavior because behavior coaching i think you put in there it's 1.5 percent i saw in one of the latest papers zero to 200 basis points uh and so first and foremost i'd love to get your definition because we can talk about behavioral economics and there's behavioral finance and behavioral coaching can you give our audience kind of a, an overview of, of behavioral economics or behavioral finance as you see it michael sure um yeah, and so I like to draw the distinction between behavioral finance as a study, right? Right, and, and studying how people make decisions, and you know, it tends to be very negative. Uh, you and I talked yeah. earlier, right? Like it just drives me absolutely insane, the negativity around it. Um, versus behavioral coaching is actually the action of uh, acting as a coach and helping people overcome uh, some of those tendencies and yeah. really kind of leaning into the emotional element of it. Again, I know like you know, we start to get into the analytics and we're modeling out tax rates. And then all of a sudden it's actually like, Hey, you have to be emotional and, you know, help your clients through some of the most difficult moments they'll go through, whether on a personal level or, you know, a more broad level through a big market downturn, whatever it may be. Um, So it's something that we focus on. You had mentioned uh, 150 basis points, our original study 
Um, we have it at a 200 now, and I'll say I don't think either of those numbers accurately describe the true impact of this, but I'll talk yeah. a little bit about where they came from because we've, you know, again, he tried to kind of, kind of try to triangulate some of these things and, and build a little more confidence around the value. Um, the 150 came from originally, we did a study at Vanguard uh, from 2008, five years ended at the end of 2012, so that five-year period uh, to include the, the great financial crisis, global financial crisis. And we looked at 50 plus thousand IRA investors and we actually said, uh, what were your investment outcomes if you made a trade, even just one trade that altered your asset allocation by greater than 5%. So trying to mm -hmm. filter out some of the rebalancing activity mm -hmm. versus those who didn't. And then compared that to something like a, you know, like a target date fund glide path, right? Something yeah. that we would say is age appropriate. So it adjusts for, you know, de-risking as you get older and kind of filters out some of the noise around that. And we actually saw it was 150 basis points. The, the clients who didn't make those big trades who actually stuck to their plan and you know maybe de-risked um, over time uh, outperformed by 150 basis points. And so that was where the original study came from. Um, we have developed, and you've probably seen something similar to Morningstar. They have what's called the investor, uh, the investor behavior gap. They put out a re report called Mind the Gap every year. Um, really interesting. Uh, but effectively, it looks at the prospectus returns of funds. So, you know, end of year, it says fund XYZ got this. Uh, and it actually adjusts those returns for the timing of the cash flows throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So we call it an asset weighted return, right? Like an mm, IRR yeah, yeah. calculation. And so we do our own proprietary version of that each year. And we look at it over different time periods. And that usually comes out to anywhere up to 200 basis points or so over longer periods of time. Um, the interesting thing, the last we looked at it for just the year 2020, and it's almost double the size. So in a volatile year, ah. um, you know, you see a, a behavior gap, as we call it, that, that almost doubles relative to those longer time horizons. Um, and so that's kind of where we get that number from. I just think it's really important to note, though, that, you know, again, that doesn't account for, you know, you were in this business during GFC and tech bubble and you know what we went through in the spring of 2020 and and really most of last year which is those moments when the market might be down 20 30 50 percent <laughs> and even a balanced investor last year was off 20 yeah right in a in a 60 40 portfolio um those moments when a client might be feeling that emotional impetus to to you know make a major change and lock in those losses it's certainly right. more than 200 basis points that's like a that's a multiple wealth yeah. yeah yeah existential that you know i say it's like the old mastercard commercial if you remember them where it's like you probably know what i'm talking about right where it's like um uh you know babysitter fifty dollars you know five-star dinners 150 dollars and it's like time with your loved one priceless right. so that was you know when we were first doing this study we were like man like this 150 basis points really isn't doing justice to no it's not the true value of this well, let's talk about that right mindset, wrong market, because this is really what it comes down to. Because as humans, we make decisions in everyday life based off of reviews, rankings, Michelin star ratings you guys reference, we help college rankings. Can you talk about why that decision-making strategy or methodology doesn't work with the markets? Yeah, well, we should start with it works everywhere else. It works everywhere else. <laughs> like, like literally everywhere else. It's, it's you know, I, I just think of whatever the most recent decision I, I made, you know, buying some trinket on Amazon. It's like, I'm reading the reviews, yeah. I'm sorting by rankings and, you know, nine times out of 10, it's going to work. 
Right. Um, so as you mentioned, we call it right mindset because we look at, you know, how do people make decisions and people make decisions based on things that have worked in the past, which is past performance, it's rankings, it's word of mouth. It's all of those things. And uh, our research paper, we go through um, restaurants, right? So you can look at Michelin stars and then compare it to Yelp reviews. So like if you yeah. go to a restaurant with a Michelin star or uh, you know, certainly one or two, um, you're going to have higher average outcomes with actually a really tight dispersion, which was interesting. So it's like you're most guaranteed to have a good outcome. Um, same with colleges. And they don't change often either. That's the other right. thing. It's, it's like the top 10 or 20 colleges are pretty much the top 10 <laughs> or 20 colleges. UCLA is the number one public university in America. <laughs> Sorry, I had to get that in there, Michael. <laughs> it, so, it sounds true. You said it with confidence. Well, it's the most applied. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but again, you, right, you use those uh, rankings to send your kids to a school. They're probably going to have a good outcome. And it's, you know, they're, they're, it's not going to go from number one to number 50. Right. Um, we even looked at heart surgeons. There's this huge body of research around medical outcomes versus uh, kind of like perceived skill and peer rankings and, and anyway as you can imagine it works it's the right mindset um and then we say the wrong market but i'll just say like we talked a little bit about the distinction between behavioral finance versus behavioral coaching behavioral finance and the academic community will often tell us that people aren't good at investing because they make irrational decisions and i'm kind of like well if you're telling me there's only one area of all of life in which i need to come up with a completely different decision making process uh and if i don't do that i'm irrational that kind of like doesn't really uh strike me as reasonable but um you know regardless so the markets are uh you know subject to the whims and the the individual yeah. constraints and biases and objectives of literally billions of participants in the global marketplace um you know i kind of put it like Current success and past success, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes sets the seeds for future underperformance. Mm. Right? We have a valuation metric, like as yeah. things do really well, they tend to get more expensive. And to be sure those things can go on for a long time and um, you know, mean, mean reversion, as we call it, is not some ironclad wall of investing, but it happens. Yeah. Um, and so what we see is that most of the cash flow tends to go into really high performing funds, especially in the active universe. Or, um, you know, if you'll have a year in which, say, emerging markets does really well or, you know, the commodities sector does really well, you'll see a ton of money fly into those things. It drives up the price um, and it tends not to persist over long periods of time. And so that money that came in after the performance already occurred uh, isn't not only is it not going to get the actual performance that you see on paper, it's probably going to underperform the areas that we're currently underperforming as well. Um, it's really hard to disentangle skill versus luck. And yeah, I saw right? or I listened to one of your episodes talking about the difference between pure skill versus pure luck, right? Because the more skillful you are, the, the, really, the luckier you need to be. Yeah, there's uh, there's an author, Michael Mobison, um, you know, fantastic writer. He's, he's you know, a, a, a polymath. I think they yeah. call him, right? He's good at one of those people that's just good at everything, yeah. right? We've, we've had him here talking about team dynamics, but he's, um, my favorite piece of his is called the success equation. And so um, he kind of frames it like this. It's there are areas of life that are purely skill, right? So like rolling a dice, for example, yeah. it's, it's, or I'm sorry, luck, purely luck, luck, yeah. uh, flipping a coin, rolling a die, right? Um, and then there are areas, you know, I think professional sports, right? Where right. they're purely skill or mostly skill. Um, and the thing is, and it's really counterintuitive, 
um, the more an endeavor uh, has skill involved and the higher that skill is, the more luck matters because everyone's so skilled. And so mm -hmm. to put it in a way, you know, that applies to us, it's, it's, you know, there are so many smart, talented people that work in the investment industry that have humongous amounts of resources and large yeah. amounts of liquidity um, and they're competing with each other. And so it gets really hard to outperform uh, in that world. And I would almost say like over time, it's probably gotten more difficult because of yeah. that. Um, versus, you know, if you come in and you're the only skillful person in something where skill matters, um, you know, you're probably going to dominate. Yeah. But the other, the other part of this element too, is like, we think there's a lot of data and in investments and we, we mine it down to the millisecond. Um, right. But there's really probably not as much data, I think, right. If you look at the sample size, um, and things change so frequently, so you get a, a large double digit market drawdown. Um, you know what, on average, maybe every three to five years or so, mm -hmm. and a really big one, hopefully like every decade or so, hopefully longer. Yeah. Um, like, what are we really going to learn from the world uh, as it was in 2008 or 2009 today? Right. You're, you know, all of your economic models are different. <laughs> like everything's so different. And so it's, it's only happening once every 10 years. Uh, and your investing horizon is, you know, 40, 50, say it's 70 years, right? Like it's, it's not as big of a data set uh, as you would think. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the how-to then. How, how should we be thinking about this? I see that you guys have that those five steps of rational decision making, really recognizing. It. And I, I went through the accreditation to for behavioral finance. The course is there, and Doug Lennick, who's the author um, of a couple books, he talked about uh, our thought process and recognizing our emotions, our thoughts, and our feelings. So recognizing those, and then reflecting on our long term values, our goals, and then from there reframing. So you guess you all have something similar. Uh, you know, to your five steps of making a, a rational decision here. Yeah. So, um, so it's interesting what you're referring to the rational decision-making process is kind of like what we say, this is how most people make decisions and, yeah. and that process probably doesn't work in investing. <laughs> and so I'll reframe that a little bit because like when we talk to financial advisors and, and investors, um, we like to focus on these three principles. So we call it the three P's. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's, it's planning, proactivity and, and positivity, actually. Um, but you kind of hit on it with planning where it's focusing on your goals and focusing on your values. Like, like Rory, what you do is, you know, it may seem like it's putting together a financial plan and building a portfolio, um, you know, helping people reach their goals. But all of those things are ultimately a means to an end. And that mm -hmm. end is fulfilling some value, right? Like whatever that value may be, whether it's right. charity or independence or family, right? Like, um, some other thing and so it's focusing on those because it takes some of the attention off of like the short-term fluctuations yeah. in the markets um you know my hypothesis here i always say like focus on the percents that people actually care about and that's what i mean by that is my hypothesis would be that the market or the portfolio is down 20 percent. i'm not sure that people care specifically that the market's down 20%, it's that they extrapolate that to mean that their ability to achieve those goals and fulfill those values is also down 20%. But if you're focusing on the on the long-term perspective and what those goals and values are, I think you'll you'll realize that, you know, the only way that's going to be true is probably to like, you know, bail out of the market or de-risk or make <laughs> a big change today and lock in the loss, ironically. Right. Um, proactivity is just preparing for that. I like to 
I, I show this chart, we call it the fan chart, but it basically goes from, you know, 100% bond portfolio to 100% stocks and 10% increments. Yeah. And it shows the best and worst uh, one year calendar year returns and then the average return. And I make the point, I'm like, unless you believe that, um, you know, all of history has been written, right? The illusion of the end of history, um, then you should probably expect that at some point in the future, maybe even during your investing life cycle, things will be worse and or uh, better than they've ever been based on those allocations. And you should prepare accordingly for that. Um, unfortunately, that uh, happened last year. So the, the I think everywhere from 100% bonds to uh, a 40-60 uh, bond stock portfolio actually had the worst one-year return in our data set last year. So it was like, you know, again, if you're preparing ahead of time, being proactive, mm -hmm. Uh, but just assuming that, you know, the, the bounds of future history are going to be within the bounds of past history, um, you're not actually going to be prepared for what happens. And then the other thing there too, it's like this, this I call it the all else equal fallacy, which is people will think about risk as this abstract thing that's disconnected from every, every other part of their life. Right. You know, it's, and it's so not, it's, like, it's not stagnant either. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's like okay well, how would you feel right the standard kind of risk risk tolerance questionnaire goes well how would you feel if you lost 10 percent? how would you feel if you lost 20 etc and most people are going to say well if i lost 20 percent, all else equal right in my current yeah. shoes that i am today that would be awful but i could handle it without realizing there's a path dependency to the world of all else is not equal because it's how would you feel if, you know, we suddenly have a global pandemic and the world closes down and there's layoffs and you're worried about your health? Oh, and by the way, you lost 20% of your assets in two weeks. <laughs> that's, that's a very different preparation. Very different day. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a very different risk tolerance. Um, then that last one, the positivity is just, it doesn't mean that everything's always going to be fine and nothing's going to be ever go wrong. It just means that you're prepared for that, right? And it means like not being too hard on yourself like all the best investors in the world are going to lose money and they're going to be down big at some point. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, certainly if they have any chance of ever being up uh, when the markets go up. And so, you know, that's just part of, you know, part of risk. There's no return without the risk. Right. And the next question I want to get into is really this trust uh, aspect. And I found the, the research findings fascinating and there's three there are three trust components you you all uh reference which is functional which came at 17 percent emotional 53 percent and 30 percent ethical can you go into you know the data there and the findings and I, i'm fascinated by the fact that that emotional was 53 percent that goes into the behavioral coaching and more the human side advice and connecting with people yeah it's, that's that's great i'm glad you saw that um, so we did a study a few years back. It was about, uh, I think, like 5,000 or so advised investors. So these are non-Vanguard clients. Mm -hmm. um, very well may have been some of your own, right? Especially the ones <laughs> with the high trust scores. Um, and so what we did, we wanted to learn everything we could about how people interact with financial advice. Why do they fire an advisor? Why do they hire an advisor? What do they value? Um, you, know, you, you name it, we asked the question. And as we were going through it, um, you know, this concept of the level of trust that the client has in their advisor was just jumping off the page as the biggest driver of both their outcomes as investors, as well as the advisor's outcomes as a, as a business provider, mm -hmm. as a service provider. Um, 
And so we thought, well, let's dig into that a little more. And so we were able to actually, you know, kind of take the responses here and classify them by, as you put it, functional, which is, you know, kind of the, the nuts and bolts of your job. Are you building portfolios? Are you doing financial planning, right? Um, and there was the ethical, it's like, do the, does the client feel like your interests are aligned with theirs? Uh, do they feel like they're getting a good deal, like you're on their side, not just trying to sell them something, but you have right. some concept of shared success. And then the emotional was everything else. It was the soft stuff that was really hard to, um, you know, to articulate. But it was interesting because when we actually looked through the survey responses, and I did, I spent months going through these responses, trying to figure out, you know, how can I, as a researcher, articulate this concept of emotional trust? And it was it was really things like listening, active listening, right? Yeah. Um, asking good questions, this notion of uh, treating them like people, not portfolios, right? So the, the research paper where you'll find that is actually called People with Portfolios. <laughs> and, it's, and it's, you know, very intentional about emphasizing, like, these are people first, yeah. right? These are va value, it goes back to what we talked about. These are underlying values. And these are real people, um, you know, that really care deeply about other people and other things that we're helping. And I think it's a really noble profession. Um, but again, it led us to this, this notion that emotional trust, so basically, you know, having clients that know that you care about them was the biggest driver of referrals. It was the biggest driver of client retention. And it was the biggest driver of asset consolidation mm -hmm. for an advisory practice, right? So when you start talking about, like, again, this is a noble profession, but it's a profession nonetheless, like we're still here running businesses um, and dawned on us the single most important thing an advisor can do um, just be there for the client, right? Like yeah. help them through those emotional moments. Uh, ironically, you know, what you might not see in that paper, but what, what, what we picked up on in there is that, uh, those clients who had trust in their advisors were not only likely to stay with them and refer them new clients, they're also going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. So when you provide them advice, your advice is going to be more effective. So whether it's coaching uh, them through a market downturn, getting them to stay the course. And so you go back to the, you know, the about 3%, it's almost like a, a necessary precondition. Um, you actually have to be able to convince your clients to take that advice, to deliver that value. And that requires emotional trust. That requires um, all those like deeply personal relationships. Yeah. Uh, I just had on the head of product of a, a new up and coming platform called Lumiant and they are doing values-based planning. And I utilize the platform um, with some people that are close to me. And we went through those exercises. We did the whole life plan. We looked at uh, a scaling questions that went over their physical health. And we went over their social uh, uh, environment, went over their uh, family and relationships. And it was just a great tool for really to do a discovery and uncover what uh, what matters most to people. We did a great values-based exercise. So it's really connecting with those people on the human side of advice, that's human-centric advisement and not focusing so much uh, on the portfolio or the returns. It's just, I, I think we're in a great point in time where we really can connect better with clients, not so much on the finances, but really at the whole life aspect. Have you done any research um, on that aspect of, of advisement, not just the financial, but maybe the whole life? Yeah, I mean, not we haven't done any survey work or like deep research on that, but I see it every day. I yeah. have the extraordinary privilege to to work with folks like you and other advisors um, all across the country and even sometimes in international markets. Um, and you know, it's the number one thing that that I see from my seat that 
determines whether an advisor is really successful or not. It's like, are they helping coach their clients through all of these life uh, events? I mean, it's, you know, in some sense, it can kind of be a little strange uh, because we, you know, we often charge on the portfolio, yeah, right? And the portfolio takes center stage. But again, it's really just a means to an end. I will say too, the, the most fulfilled on a personal level advisors I've ever met are the ones like yourself who, who kind of operate under that type of framework as well. Or again, it's a really noble profession. Um, right. You know, if you're what, just selling somebody stocks and you don't care if they go yeah, up, you're just running wrong? up commissions. What you, like, exactly. What's the yeah. point? <laughs> Versus, I'm sure you could tell us a thousand stories about all these, you know, great moments that you've had, you know, seeing your clients through good moments or helping them through really difficult moments. Yeah. Um, you know, right. Well, one of the most one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. I was at a CFA conference a couple of years ago. Um, and they had an addiction counselor there yeah. on a panel with an end of life counselor. And, yeah. you know, they were kind of like, just because you've accumulated wealth doesn't mean that you're immune from these types of problems. And they place so much trust in their advisor. Yeah. Um, they're probably going to come to you for those things. And it, it kind of like opened my eyes a little bit. I hadn't really thought about the types of, you know, emotional stuff that you probably have to deal with. Yeah, because you you have those conversations, Michael, and you have intimate knowledge. A lot of times, people can't really open up about their life. They don't. They share the intimate knowledge of their finances. So, you know, sometimes they'll open up about their family, their, their issues with their children. So we are like you said, we are privileged because we have intimate details on people's lives. Um, so, you know, I find it really rewarding to to dive deeper and help help people not just with their finances, but really the the whole life aspects um you know of advisement and i saw i wanted to touch on this because i think this is important what we're doing here i trademarked the term advise roar a greater return on relationship and this kind of piggybacks stuff we're talking about really not all advice can be automated and a lot of the stuff that is being automated is the rebalancing the portfolio selection but as we move up on um on the services i saw one of your charts here the stuff that's going to be hard to automate that's highly valued is family-owned businesses or family office. We advise family-owned businesses, charitable giving and tax and accounting, uh, estate planning, trust services. Can you talk about that, how technology is automating a lot of these, these tasks, but these higher level, more strategic um, uh, offerings are really what clients are looking for? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I'll, I'll, well, I have to ask this. So yeah. uh, adv advise Roar, uh, since since we're being recorded here, if I start using that, like what's the what's the fee here? What's the what's the royalty? Uh, I'm not charging so a royalty. Much. It's free for right now. And eventually, once the get words out, then we'll start charging a royalty. <laughs> it's just such a great way to put what we were just talking about, right? The return on relationship. It's like the importance of the relationship. The return accrues to, uh, you know, to you as the advisor, but also to the to the client and their ability to receive. Yeah, Good because advice. I'm, yeah, I'm saying that we shouldn't be a servant to a service. We should be a, a service to a relationship. As we work with CPAs, estate planning attorneys, uh, financial advisors, that's why I turn. I was, I was getting frustrated, Michael, by the term advisor. There's tax advisor. There's business advisor. There's financial advisor. <laughs> I said, well, no, really, we can work with a client and solve whatever's most pressing in their life at that time, and we're making sure we're being holistic. So looking at the whole picture. Like I said, investments are affected by taxes. Someone has a majority of their money in, in their in their business or their family business. We want to make sure that we're working with the accounting firm to make sure that we have an understanding of what's going on on that side as well. Yep. 
Um, love it. So uh, back to your question though. So um, well, I'll start with this. So, uh, you know, where that had originally come from. So if we look back, uh, we're sitting here in, uh, you know, 2023, if you go back probably 2015, 16, somewhere in that range, there was a mm-hmm. lot of attention in the robo advisor space. Right. Right. <laughs> I'm de- sure you the death of the financial well. advisor. <laughs> right. And so, you know, we, we kind of looked at that and, um, at the time, I was part of our uh, what's called our investment strategy group. So it's currently led and was led at the time by our chief economist. Um, and he and his team did this piece of work called the future of work. And so it was interesting because they, you know, they didn't do it just for advisors, right? It was the context of like the labor market as a whole yeah. and kind of this academic study. But it really jumped off the page to me was they said, um, you know, tasks, or I'm sorry, jobs don't get automated away. Tasks get automated away and what has happened over history is that those jobs have evolved to take on more of what they coined uniquely human elements and there's this incredible chart in there and it lists out basic medium and advanced tasks right the advanced being the uniquely human and when (laughs) i read it i was like that is the job description of a financial advisor and so uh immediately this notion that you know robo advisors are coming and i'll add you know we're uh, you know, we're feeling a little prescient right now with, uh, with the, uh, you know, current attention around generative AI, yeah. right. And just, you know, it's, is it a, you know, the final <laughs> innovation or is it another in a long line that's going right. to, uh, make you even better at what you do? We clearly think the latter, uh, spoiler yeah. alert, but <laughs> it was really, again, like what's going to happen is all the stuff that you're doing. That's not building relationships. It's not driving a return on those relationships. That's not those personalized right you mentioned like charitable giving and accounting and tax and it's not that you can't do a formula to do accounting it's that you can't understand what's important to somebody wants, yeah right it's it's you know the same with insurance like there's plenty of software startups out there that you can type in <laughs> your information and it'll tell you well, this is your optimal amount of insurance but they're not figuring out what keeps you up at night yeah and so you know the other way i look at it was so my first job before i came to vanguard back before gfc worked for an advisory firm uh, one of my responsibilities was rebalancing portfolios. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, uh, my hairline may, you know, be lying myself a little <laughs> bit here, but I'm not, I'm not that old. Right. And so at the time, my hairline's was, gone, Michael. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm way ahead of you, buddy. <laughs> rebalancing a portfolio for me was manually typing in weights into an Excel spreadsheet, calculating what the new weight should be going back and updating it at the end of the day when everything prices, and yeah. then filling out a trade ticket by hand and faxing it. <laughs> right, that was rebalancing. And so that was, that was like, you know, I was spending hours and hours a week doing that. And I fast forward today, I'm sure you're probably rebalancing your portfolios with the click of a button right. or something, you know, not far off of that. And so you ask, okay, well, where has that time gone? And you, it's again, having those uniquely human conversations. It's, it's building the relationships. It's, you know, again, if you were to go through and look at that list of those tasks in there, um, and I think it's underappreciated by a lot. Like you're an entrepreneur too, right? Even right. if you work for a big firm or if you have your own firm, um, either way, the, the job of being a financial advisor is very, very entrepreneurial and you need time uh, to run a good business and make sure that you have your processes and you have your technology all figured out and you're hiring and training and developing your staff um, and all those different things. Yeah. I mean, I just saw a post literally earlier this morning where they just released or announced that Intuit's having an AI tool. And it was pretty incredible, uh, Michael, 
it was taking QBO, QuickBooks Online, it was taking TurboTax, it was taking Credit Karma, and the AI would, like, for instance, I think they looked at, I saw someone ask the AI, you know, why do I owe taxes? And it showed their withholding, uh, their self-employment tax, their capital gain, and it says, this is why you owe you know, do you want to speak with uh, an agent? I'm like, oh my gosh, that is yeah. like, we're getting to that point. But that's why I go back to the return on relationship. And I think AI will take along a lot, a lot, I'm not talking, AI will take on a lot of these, these tasks here, but it's being that human, being more of that therapist. I hate to say it, but we're really our therapists a, a lot of times coaching those people to make better decisions when it comes to the market dropping, you know, 20% in, in, in March to help them guide through them through that process um, because they do want to talk to a human at the end of the day, I believe. Uh, and because they do trust that person, they're making tough decisions, complex decisions, um, and they want to make sure they're doing it correctly and confidently. Yeah. And I would just, I would just say, you know, for, for everyone listening, you know, keep your eyes on the technology because it's not just, um, you know, automate away those menial tasks. It's, it's, you know, how do you make yourself better at the other stuff too? I call it automate and augment. Mm -hmm. right like how do you become a bionic advisor for, for <laughs> lack of a better way to put it and you know another example right like it's not just okay well now i'm clicking a button to rebalance my portfolio instead of uh you know faxing trade tickets yeah. but i also have a rolodex and a rotary phone yeah it's like no you're, <laughs> you're 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 you can use technology to augment your ability to have better relationships yeah. um whether it's through freeing up your time or or you know, thinking about interesting ways to use data in the future. One of the things we talk about, and it goes back to where we started at the very beginning here, um, it's so hard to come up with a benchmark for what someone would do without your advice. And I think that mm -hmm. makes it naturally a little more difficult and probably even more so for your audience. It's very quantitative focused yeah. to articulate the value, right, with confidence. And so we think a lot about how can we create these alternate histories, uh -huh. right? And, and one that we've done, we call it our market hindsight tool. Um, you can actually enter a start date and an end date and you can enter, you know, a bail to cash date, right? Which is, yeah. let's just use 2020 as the example. Let's say you started the year with a million dollar portfolio. Your client called you on, you know, let's just say April 1st. I'm just making numbers up here. Let's mm -hmm. say the market was down 20% and, you know, they're, you know, an aggressive investor. So they, you know, wanted to get out of the market. You successfully leveraged your emotional trust and your relationship, your ability to coach them. They stayed the course ended the year plus 20 yeah. plus 18, whatever the market was versus having locked in a 15 or 20% loss. And so that it'll actually show those ultimate histories where you say, Hey, that one conversation, like that. that one, you know, we went through, I, we always say make it a shared experience though. Right. It's not just, I saved yeah. you. It's, it's, Hey, like we went through this together. And instead of having an $800,000 portfolio today, you have a $1.2 million portfolio. So it's, it's thinking like, how can you get creative maybe that's a frontier for technology to help us kind of like track what could have been. So much of this is framing, Michael. It's yeah. framing that for the client, um, as you've stated here. All right. I've been asking guests on the podcast, Michael, because the, the return on relationship is the messaging we're using here. Has there been anybody professionally, personally that you want to recognize that has had the greatest impact on you? Yeah. So I'll actually, and I'm not saying this just because he's my boss now, <laughs> um, but, uh, uh, Fran Canary here at Vanguard. So he's actually the leader of my team, the investment uh -huh. advisory research center. Um, we went a number of years where we didn't work together. Uh, he was asked to launch this department last year and I had actually left the company. 
um, mm -hmm. Vanguard at one point and went to another firm for a year or so um, and came back to be part of that. But, um, you know, a long line of, of alumni that, that he has led and taught and, um, you know, really, you know, more so than just the expertise. And he invented the term Advisors Alpha all the way back in 2001 um, mm -hmm. is, is the, what you learn in terms of leadership. Um, you know, treating everybody like a family. I mean, he's a father of five children, right? And he's still able to, you know, put his family yeah. first, but also be successful in the industry. And he treats all of us the same way. Um, uh, you know, years ago in my career, I vividly remember you go in for the year-end performance review mm -hmm. and um, it's like, well, I did this, I did that. I did this many meetings. I wrote this many papers. I brought in this much money. And it's like, well, I don't care. Like, how much did you do of that for your direct reports? Yeah. people that report to you right and you're judged more on like creating opportunities for others and developing others and building yeah. out a bench than you are for your own success and again he's the first person to give up a great you know opportunity or a great you know client meeting potential or you know a, an opportunity to go get in front of the senior executive here he'd be the absolute first yeah. person to give it up to give someone else the opportunity um yeah so yeah it's been a huge huge impact professionally i love it yeah, I always say the internal relationship with your colleagues, with your clients, and, you know, and with yourself, uh, most importantly, too. All right, Michael, is there anything else that we didn't touch on? I know we have a bunch of stuff here. Uh, is there anything that you want to share with our audience that we didn't talk about? Um, no, I, you know, the, the only thing we kind of like touched on it a little bit, I just, I just want to hammer home just how noble of a profession this is. I know you see it with your clients, and I know other advisors do too, but, um, you know, I know you, you and I have talked like, very proud to be yeah. part of this industry. And so we hear a lot about how hard it is to be an investor and how hard the last few years are. We just want to empathize. It's been a really difficult few years for advisors too, right? Like both from a business perspective yeah, and, and a and mental health like you, perspective. Yeah, Sure. Like you said, like taking on so much, um, you know, not just the stress of the markets, but like we talked about some of those personal situations that your clients really lean on. Yeah. Um, so I hope that you know, you all know that we're grateful for what you do for your clients and for the industry. And we think a rising tide lifts all boats. And um, yeah, just really appreciative for the opportunity to talk to you today and get in front of everyone. And I love it. Um, I appreciate you coming on, Michael. Yeah. <laughs> this is this outstanding. So I love the work that you all do at Vanguard. You all keep up the good work. Uh, uh, I know you do so much and, and so much good for uh, the investment world out there. Awesome. Appreciate all right, it. Buddy. Thank you, Michael. All opinions expressed by Rob Santos and Rory Henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Arrowroot Family Office LLC or their parent company or affiliates and may have been previously disseminated on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. Past performance is not indicative of future results.